And I would say this, focused minds, focused finances, focused organizations simply have more impact than those that aren't. Welcome to the Journey to Impact podcast, where we show you how to turn your unique passion into a strategy to change the world. Whether you're trying to grow in business or improve your golf game, you're almost guaranteed to have greater success when you have strategy, focus, and a way to measure your progress and make necessary adjustments. These same principles apply when you're looking at making an impact on the world. If you don't have a plan or a way to know if you're actually making progress and focusing on the right things, how can you expect to have the greatest possible impact? In this episode, Ed will show you why strategy, focus, and the right metrics are so important on your journey to impact. It's time to get off the bench. Let's do this. Here's your host, Ed Gillentine. Hello again, this is Ed Gellantine, and thank you for joining this, our seventh podcast in this series on the basics of impact, which is designed to go a bit deeper into the ideas and principles in the book Journey to Impact. We covered a lot of ground in the last podcast, especially talking a lot about your life experiences, and then we talked about how those life experiences combined with your skills and your passions really all sort of work together to help you triangulate, to help you focus in on finding your impact sweet spot. And we even threw in a little bit of baseball, my favorite sport, and talked about how Ted Williams and his strike zone research helped us find our sweet spot in the impact world. And today we're going to talk about the signs of success for impact practitioners and impact organization. That is, what are some signs, what are some common denominators that impact practitioners and impact organizations seem to do that indicate success? I would say over the past 15 years, maybe, I've had the privilege of observing quite a few impact organizations as well as individuals that have had significant impact. And it's something I really enjoy doing I know I've mentioned this before. I really hate reinventing the wheel. And so whenever I'm around people that have had some success in the impact arena, I like to pick their brain, right? And what I've noticed is most of them are just as happy to show and to explain and to describe failures as they are successes. And uh, I, I know I'm certainly like that. If you if you think about it, somebody that's really passionate about impact, if they've made some dumb mistakes or even just some unforeseen mistakes and had some failures, they typically want to tell people about it so they don't have to stumble like they did, right? And I know that I can think of three or four people. They've been really helpful relative to our work in Africa because they had been there for years and had made a lot of the mistakes. So... I want to be clear that these signs of success are not just in organizations, right? They're in individuals and family units as well. And even though a family's strategic plan, if you will, may fit on one page, and and for Liz and I, our our strategic plan is actually a a drawing. But it's just as critical as maybe a 10 or 15-page paper that a huge organization like maybe the, the Red Cross has spent hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to hone and get exactly right so that they can have maximum impact. But whether it's personally or organizationally, these several signs of success that we're going to go through are indicative of the likelihood of success for impact. Okay, so the first one I really want to talk about is that impact is strategic. 
I personally have never seen a individual or an organization have significant impact without at least a basic level of strategy and intentionality. Even when you think about the discovery of penicillin that we talked about previously, Dr. Fleming was actively seeking a cure for staphylococcus. He wasn't just sitting around his lab waiting for something to happen. He wasn't just, well... That's pretty neat. I wonder how that would apply. That, that wasn't his approach, right? He was actively seeking a cure for viruses. And even though he didn't evidently expect to make that breakthrough with penicillin, he was actively seeking a cure for viruses. And so just to use the vernacular of this podcast and the book Journey to Impact, he was on the road to impact. And it's just simply highly unlikely that you or anybody else is going to stumble into impact without a strategy or some basic level of directional focus. You might stumble into a method or a technique. I think I've done that a couple of times. You might stumble into a sector or a focus of impact. I think I've done that a couple of times. You might even stumble into a result that produces impact. But without some level of basic strategy and planning, it's really unlikely that you're going to have significant impact. So there's an old saying that I like, chance favors the prepared mind. And that seems to ring true to me relative to impact. I enjoy playing golf. I have noticed that the more I practice my putting, the more often I get lucky. The great Gary Player, Hall of Fame golfer from South Africa, a true gentleman, he says it this way, the more you practice, the luckier you get. And if you and I are being intentional about what we're trying to do in the direction that we're headed, we may not end up exactly where we thought we would end up, but we're likely going to be in the general vicinity. To quote another great athlete, philosopher Yogi Berra, if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up somewhere else. That's what Yogi says. And so we started this process with a definition of impact. And your unique description of impact is where you're going, right? That's the destination. But strategy is the flight plan. It's how you're going to get there. And at the risk of sounding overly simplistic, just the mere discipline of writing down and communicating a strategy and then periodically reviewing it forces you to challenge assumptions, it forces you to make adjustments, and it forces you to measure impact. I have observed that one of the main differentiators between success and mediocrity in the impact world is not the brilliance or the complexity of the strategic plan but simply that there is one and that it's followed like one would follow a roadmap on a trip. Let me sort of, I guess, add a little color to this by sharing a little bit about how Highland Harvesters got started and some successes, but also some bumps in the road as we went along. So Highland Harvesters is the impact investment that we're involved in in Africa and Ethiopia, specifically southern Ethiopia and rural southern Ethiopia and the highlands. And when we first got started, we were pretty disciplined to write down our strategies. And some of those strategies were simply to help people. That was really almost kind of an overarching strategy. How can we help people? We wanted to provide jobs. We wanted to provide job skill training. We wanted to provide economic growth. One of my, I don't know if you'd call this a core value or a core philosophy, but it's economic growth, driving economic growth through profitable businesses, I think is really important because it has catalytic impact. It touches so many things. 
I think I mentioned this earlier, in Ethiopia, in Highland Harvesters, the, the farm, there's 150 people employed. Each one of those 150 people are directly impacting at least 10 other people in their house, right, in their direct proximity. Because families are so large and there's so much poverty that they have to sort of stay together. And so when you think about the impact there that we're able to have by employing those people, it's magnified, right, because the money that they make in turn goes to school uniforms and school fees and medicine and all these sorts of things. So one of our strategies was providing economic growth. That was a huge part of it. We also wanted to hire women in a male-dominated culture, and I'll come back to that in a minute and provide some a little bit more color. We wanted to fund educational health initiatives out of the profits. You know, in our environment today, maybe it's our culture, I don't know, profits many times seem to be almost evil, right? If you make a profit, then you charged somebody too much, I guess. And, and certainly there is free market capitalism that is way out of line. But a healthy business makes profit. And why do they make profit? So that it can be poured back into the company to grow it, which provides more economic opportunity, more job training, that sort of thing. We see profit as a huge benefit. I I see profit, we see profit at Highland Harvesters as the blood in a body. Like You don't wake up in the morning and say, all right, heart, let's start pumping blood, right? But if you don't have blood, you're not going to do what you got out of bed in the morning to do. And the same is true of our business. Cash or profits are the blood. And I don't wake up in the morning saying, we got to make as much money as possible. But I do wake up in the morning saying, how can we have impact? And for a business, profits provide that. They provide the opportunity for us to fund schools and infrastructure and all those things there in rural southern Ethiopia that we wouldn't be able to do if we didn't have a productive business. I apologize, I digress there a little bit. So those are some of the Highland Harvester strategies. And, and we wrote them down, sure, for accountability and, and sure so that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we've got the location of where we're headed, right? We've got our, our goals. But we also wanted to go back and challenge them when and as it turned out they were incorrect or our assumptions were wrong. So why did we choose apples? And, and again, I'm just, I'm sort of going through this so you can get a feel of what we thought about, but also so you can see how important having a strategic approach is. So why apples? Because we looked at 12 to 15 different businesses in different business sectors there in Ethiopia over a period of five or six years, and we ended up with apples. Well, just real quickly, it was a relatively low initial cost with a high growth potential. And also it had a high potential for scalability, right? It, we could go from 10,000 seedlings to 150,000 pretty quickly once we had the infrastructure and the, the base, the core in place. But if our assumptions were wrong, we could stay with a smaller operation and still be functional, still be profitable and still be able to have the impact that we wanted to have. It also had high projected profit, which is important to me um, because it allowed more investment in the community with schools, with education, with medical facilities. There's no, when we got there, there was no clinic, medical clinic there in the village. It allows infrastructure like roads and bridges. You think about rural southern Ethiopia, when the rainy season comes and it washes the road out, you're sort of stuck. Well, that's maybe not a big deal if you've got plenty of food, 
but what if somebody gets sick? It's very difficult to get them, I'm guessing, an eight-hour walk down the mountain to the next clinic, right? So that infrastructure is really important to the thriving of that community. Why apples? It was within our skill set here. We had a couple of really solid ag guys that understood apples and how that worked. We actually had a really solid local labor base there because they had been farming and producing apples for 60, 70 years, and they had a pretty solid basic base of knowledge, right? We also wanted to create ancillary jobs in industry. So if you think about an apple orchard, we need bees, right? Um, Because we need to pollinate the apple trees. We need fence building material. We need wells. We need roads dug. We need lots of manure, (laughs) right? Um, So we were hoping to create a lot of ancillary jobs that maybe they weren't directly employed by us, but we could provide them with a pretty solid stream of income from which to build and start another business. Uh, Another thing that we really like was the potential to go from low-tech to high-tech. I'm not talking about fancy computers and iPhones, but simply planting techniques, ag techniques that um, increase their yield. I'm not talking about GMOs or anything like that, which is a fascinating conversation to me, but simply planting techniques and basic tools. So one of the big things, I think I mentioned this maybe earlier, was the opportunity to hire and help women economically uh, with job skills and independence, right? That was a big thing. Um, When you have a job as a woman in a developing or emerging or frontier market, to use a financial economic term, when you have a job, you have independence. You are less dependent on all of the curveballs that women in male-dominated societies have to deal with. And we realized actually later on that that was a big part of it. So all these things were a part of our strategic plan. One of the things that worked really well has been the impact on local women. We never realized what a huge impact that would be, but it was challenging when we first got started in that village, the men expected to get all the good jobs, even if they were lazy or not hard workers. And when we started giving the job opportunities to the women because they earned them, right? Not simply because they were women. They were the clearly the better, harder workers. We had some issues we had to deal with culturally in and in the village there, some pretty disgruntled males, right? But I would say 55 to 60% of our workforce is comprised of women. I would also go so far as to say that they are our best workers, Well, why has that been so rewarding? Well, we learned that in that village, especially if the mom didn't have a job and the government decided to randomly say, everybody needs new uniforms, they couldn't send their kid to school. If they couldn't afford even the the low fees to send them to school, their kids weren't going to be able to go. They couldn't afford basic medicine. So giving them that level of opportunity has been phenomenal and has been so rewarding to watch. I'll tell you one of the things that didn't work. And I say this because no plan ever works out perfectly, right? But you want to learn from either your mistakes or wrong assumptions or whatever. But one thing that hadn't worked out is the ancillary jobs and and industry that we had hoped we would be able to stimulate. And I think there's a lot of things about that. We're still learning about it, frankly. But a lot of it is just the culture, the education, the financial resources for people, the mindset um, that we've talked about earlier about you know not wanting to take a long-term approach 
all of those things were were better and better understanding. But we ultimately ended up having to get into the manure business, not something we wanted to do. We certainly didn't want to be processing fence materials, but we've had to do that. We certainly didn't want to be using our people to dig roads and build wells, but we ultimately had to spend a lot more money than we thought on those types of things. So how would we have known, though, what was effective, what was not, what were the right questions to ask, what were, what were the wrong assumptions if we didn't have a plan? So on a really practical level, I don't care whether you're in Ethiopia, Asia, the United States, it doesn't really matter. What I've noticed, one of the most needed functions in impact organizations is strategic planning. Typically, the founder of the organization is pretty good at describing the impact. They're, they're pretty good at sort of understanding what they're passionate about and what their skill sets are. They see the needs. They see where they can help. But many times they're not very good at the details, and they're not very good at creating a strategic plan, particularly funding. Some of that's because they're in such a hurry to help that they don't want to take the time to build a good foundation. Some of it is because they have everything in their head and it makes sense in their head and they don't want to take the time to put it on paper and and have it challenged, frankly, by other people, which is a really healthy thing. But there are a ton of people, particularly in the business world, that are really good at strategic planning. And for the most part, I would suggest to you that those people are sitting on the sidelines. So coming alongside a visionary founder and helping them build a strategic plan to execute their vision is incredibly power. Talk about a, a powerful, talk about a catalytic impact that you could have on an impact organization. So as I wrap up this section on strategic planning as a road sign to success, I want to leave a caveat. And it's what I call strategic flexibility. No matter how much planning or research or wise counsel or discussion goes into your impact strategy, there is really only one guarantee, right? And it's this. It's not going to go exactly as you planned. Hopefully, it's going to be close. Most likely, it's going to be in the ballpark. But if you don't plan in strategic flexibility, then you are by default planning for frustration and likely for failure. So we're talking about road signs of success. And one of the things that I hope you've picked up on throughout these discussions, these podcasts, is the implied power of focus. And even when we were talking about the Venn diagram, the overlapping circles in one of our previous podcasts, the idea of that was hopefully that it would be a visual cue that focus is a result of this entire process. Even the idea of impact relative to its formal dictionary definition suggests being driven by focus. And so out of curiosity, I looked up the definition of focus in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and it's defined as a center of activity, attraction or attention, a point of concentration, directed attention, and lastly, adjustment for distinct vision, also the area that may be seen distinctly or resolved into a clear image. Now what I take from that is not only is there a center point of concentration, but that it's clear and distinct. And just as important, it's implied that when things wander from the center point of concentration, or if they lose their clarity or their distinctiveness, focus recenters, redirects, reconcentrates, and reclarifies. And I, I think that's worth repeating. When you or I lose focus or clarity or distinctiveness, focus will recenter, redirect, reconcentrate, and reclarify. Now let's get practical. 
It only takes a brief look at our calendars, whether they're on the back of your refrigerator door or you have a fancy calendar on your handheld device. We only have to take a brief look to remind us of how difficult it is to focus. I may tell you that my family's important, but between work and school, coaching the golf team, homework, the only time I ever see Liz or the kids is in the car on the way to the next appointment, right? Or on the way to school really briefly. You may say that education is important to you and that you want to understand an impact sector, but when was the last time you read a new book? Not just an easy one, but a book that was challenging, that it helped you learn. Liz and I may say that at-risk children are the focal point of our impact, but if our time and our resources are spread thinly over 20 or 30 different unrelated philanthropic strategies, are we really focused on at-risk children? Right. We've already talked about the primary problem, and that you know is not having a plan or some sort of strategy. And one of the greatest benefits of strategy is that it forces you to focus. We've all heard that the good is the enemy of the best, right? And I think that's certainly true when it comes to focusing. There are so many good opportunities, so many great options. Sometimes we get distracted by them. And I think this is particularly challenging in the area of philanthropic opportunities and impact strategies. I can't think of an idea for impact that doesn't stir my heart. And even within the sphere that Liz and I have chosen to focus on, at-risk children, there are a bunch of different options and a bunch of different really fantastic organizations. So how do you deal with that? I know several years ago, I was feeling a lot of stress and unrest that Liz and I weren't maximizing the impact that we had envisioned. So she and I took a Starbucks date to talk about it. And first thing we talked about was how we were spending our time. And it turned out that our calendars were out of control. Between the two of us, we were on seven or eight nonprofit boards. We were traveling two or three weeks a year to learn about or to consult with different impact strategies. I personally was meeting on average twice a week when I look back to my calendar. It was averaging two times a week with nonprofit leaders and impact strategies, impact investors, very few of which were in our area of focus, right? And on top of all that, I was running a growing company and trying to or was supposed to be spending time with my wife and three small kids at the time. By the way, can you guess who got pushed out of the calendar? You're right. It was the family, right? Even though I was saying that was important to me, when we looked at the calendar, there was a glaring issue there. After that, we looked at how we were spending our money. Were we really focusing on the nonprofits that we were passionate about? And the answer, guess what, guys, was no. We had allowed our financial support to drift from three to five organizations to close to 20 different organizations. And hear me say this, they weren't bad, right? They were actually quite good. But they were significantly diluting our financial support to organizations that we were passionate about and that were having catalytic impact. This didn't happen overnight. It took us three or four years to get there. Drifting is what I call it. And where the good became the enemy of the best, we simply lost focus. And by the way, as we were drifting, Liz and I didn't really talk to each other. I think mostly because we didn't see it. I say that because your spouse or loved ones many times are the best people in the world to keep you focused, right? Because they're not particularly impressed with you. When I think of focus, for some reason, I always think of, a magnifying glass when I was a child. I'm really not sure 
who dreamed up that it would be wise to show a child that you can focus the sun's energy and set stuff on fire with a $2 magnifying glass from Walmart. But I had a lot of fun with that, right? Mostly harmless. I did happen to catch the grass on fire. I was able to put it out, but I, I caught a little portion of our, our yard on fire one time. But how is it that I could catch the yard on fire with just a piece of glass? And nothing special, by the way. Just a couple dollars at the dollar store. Well, it's simply because of focus. A regular window pane doesn't do that. Sure, it gets a little bit hotter in the summertime, but a, a regular window pane is not going to set the grass on fire. The difference between window panes and magnifying glasses is simply the difference between how they focus the energy of the sun. And I would say this, focused minds, focused finances, focused organizations simply have more impact than those that aren't. Another important sign of success that I've seen across organizations and across impact sectors is measurability. And this is particularly true if you want to have real lasting impact. Because if you think about it, if you don't know what you're measuring, how in the world can you know if you're having impact or not? I probably mention golf too often, but it just seems to be a good analogy here when you talk about measurability. Golf is a challenging sport, and uh, I am the head coach of the middle school girls golf team at the school where my children attend. As you might imagine, that's a little bit like herding cats, but it's a lot of fun, and I've learned a lot about myself learned a lot about the girls, and it's been a lot of fun. But one of the things we focus on is what to measure, right? So on, a, on the surface, golf looks like it's pretty simple, right? It's a score. You're going to shoot the score, you're going to write it down, and there you have it. But it's a lot more nuanced than that. And most people kind of get the idea that if I keep the ball in fairway, that would be fairways in regulation. And if I hit the ball on the green, green's in regulation, and if I can put the ball in, I'll probably do pretty good. But I was talking to one of the girls recently, and I believe she drove the ball in the fairway like 14, or excuse me, 11 out of 14 times, right? You take out the par threes. She did pretty good on greens and regulation, but she still shot basically 20 over par. Well, what's that? She she did what she was supposed to with the fairways and the greens. Well, then you have to start introducing things like proximity to the hole, right? It's fantastic if you're on the green in regulation, but that usually means you've got one, or excuse me, two putts to get in the hole. Well, what if you're on a gigantic green and it's 100 feet away? Well, that's, that's kind of really hard. And you're much more likely to two putt, right, from 20 feet or 15 feet than 120 feet. Right. So knowing what you're measuring is really, really important. And in golf, especially when you're dealing with beginners, depending on which of the experts you talk to, there's 110 to probably 180 different pieces to a golf swing. So it's really, really hard to learn. And a lot of times they don't seem obviously connected to each other. So if you're a middle school girl just picking up a golf club for the first time and all you focus on is the score, you're going to be pretty horribly disappointed. And if, as a coach, I tell her, don't worry about the score, I just want you to focus on getting the ball in the fairway and getting the ball on the green in regulation, she's also going to be horribly disappointed, especially if she's just now learning how to grip the club, what the stance is, all that sorts of thing. So measurability is really important in golf. And one of the things that we hammer into the girls on the golf team over and over is what they measure. 
right? So if you're a beginner, I frankly am not sure what differences it, it makes probably to even keep score, right? So when we're working with a new golfer, we want to make sure that they hold the club right, they grip the club right. And so I'll tell them something like, I want you to focus on gripping the club right, because if you don't get that right, nothing else is going to go right. And I don't even care if you swing and miss the ball. If you grip the club right, I'm happy, right? Or even one of the more advanced players that's been playing for several years, maybe they're talking about something that's as specific as bracing your right leg, right? So you can generate power and get a weight shift and all that stuff. I told one of the girls yesterday, I believe, I don't really care where the ball goes. I don't even care if you swing and miss it. All I'm going to ask you is, did you brace your right leg? And if you did that, that's a success, right? Because I know that if she will begin to build the muscle memory and build a really solid foundation of a repeatable swing that's consistent and that over the years will narrow her misses, I know the score is going to take care of itself. I know the fairways and regulation are going to take care of themselves. I know the proximity to the hole is going to take care of itself, right? In the impact world, it's easy to fall into measuring things like donations received or dollars spent. In, in many respects, I'm going to say that it's almost a pointless metric. It's a metric, just like keeping score is a metric. But whether you raise $100 million or $100 billion, what's that got to do with impact? And that's the more challenging question. I remember... Several years ago, I believe it was Madonna, and then I also think Angelina Jolie did some projects. I believe they were in Ethiopia for at-risk kids, for, for orphans, basically. And the number that sticks in my head for the project that Madonna was involved with was $25 million or $30 million and wanted to build a sort of a, a campus, a compound, uh, especially for girls, so they get education, uh, food, clothing, um, some job skills, some some things like that. Really tremendous ideas and opportunities. But I think it took maybe three to five years and all that money was gone. And as I recall, little to nothing to show for it. Why is that? It was trumpeted that, you know, $20 million or $30 million or whatever it was that was raised was going to solve the problem. I think the trap that we fall into is if we raise enough money, particularly as Westerners, particularly, particularly as, <laughs> as Americans, if we raise enough money, then we'll be able to transplant our ideas and our way of doing things to Ethiopia and it's going to work. Well, it doesn't, typically. So we can measure money, money raised, money spent, that sort of thing. But it's not really helpful in most cases. Building and refining accurate metrics is one of the most challenging things you're going to do in the impact world. It's really hard, really, really hard, because it requires humility when you realize you've been tracking the wrong metric are using the wrong assumptions. It requires flexibility, which by the way, I'm not very good at flexibility because you have to make changes based on what you learn from the metrics that you're tracking. It also, and I want you to hear this carefully, it requires courage to make metric-driven changes when they fly in the face of conventional wisdom. I think one of the areas where that happens a lot is education. In Ethiopia, education is high priority for the government, high priority for everybody, and it should be. But they'll mandate education for everyone, and maybe they'll have 50 or 75 students in a room really designed for 25 on hard benches for long periods of time. And just recently, they mandated that all teaching must be done in English. So first of all, you had a bunch of teachers scrambling to learn English, and what they end up doing 
and and I totally understand this is basically read a textbook in a second language, right? To a group of kids that for the most part don't understand. So how effective is that education, right? Finding the correct metrics in the education world is difficult because you have to bump up against so many long-standing and emotionally held assumptions. I would say this, uh, Slingshot Memphis, you can Google them, or the Robin Hood organization in New York City are two fantastic organizations relative to measuring impact. They've really sort of adopted the premise that many of the principles of investment analysis can be applied to impact organizations. And so they use quantitative and qualitative analysis to figure out which organizations to fund. And, and, and the idea is with limited resources, the funds need to be going to the organizations that are having real catalytic and sustainable impact. So they spend the bulk of their time working with organizations and mining data and figuring out what data is important and what is not. So think about this. If you're an organization in the city of Memphis, which is one of the poorer cities, poor major cities in the country, and you have a thesis that reducing poverty in a given area is driven by providing job training and job interviews for the unemployed, then it would make a lot of sense that the number of job interviews would be an appropriate metric, right? But after you do that for some period of time and you review the data, you interview the participants, you interview the HR departments that are also interviewing the participants, and you learn that very few of the job applicants know how to interview, right? Because if you've been in a job interview, you know there's a bit of a skill to it. That is, maybe they don't know how to carry themselves. Maybe they don't know what the appropriate dress is for a particular interview. Maybe even how to respond to basic interview questions. So you get that data back. Maybe they need to add job interview prep to the part of the process, not just job skills training and then setting up the appointment, but prepping for the interview. But how in the world would you know that if you didn't do the research, right? If you didn't have the metrics. Let me wrap up this segment with yet another caveat, and it's this. Solid metrics are not the end goal. Elliot Eisner said this, not everything that's important is measurable, and not everything that's measurable is important. So metrics are a powerful tool. They really are. And the goal is to use solid metrics to gain insight that's going to drive catalytic impact in your sector. Wrestle with the metrics. It's really, really hard. Wrestle with the metrics Continue to refine the questions, the assumptions. Because if you can figure out what you need to be measuring, your impact is going to grow by leaps and bounds. Thanks for listening. If you know someone that would enjoy and benefit from this podcast, please share it with them. We want to spread the message and show others how they can join the journey to impact. We'll see you next time.